One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Motormouth podcast, episode three with Tim Sylvie and myself, Harry Benjamin. In this episode, we chat to Perry McCarthy, a racing driver and the first ever Top Gear Stig. He chats all about the ups and downs of his career, from starting with severe back injury to cracking America before F1 came calling, but sadly, it wasn't meant to be. His fortunes revived after with spells in sports cars before the BBC came calling, and still with racing plans today. We hope you enjoy, and don't forget to like and subscribe. Just search for the Motormouth podcast in your favourite podcast platform, uh, where you can also leave us a review. So, welcome to the third episode of the Motormouth podcast. Uh, Harry, welcome back back how are you i'm very well thank you tim um good to be back on the on the next podcast so what you've been up to what's been happening oh um well i did a very exciting voiceover this morning did for, you know? i'm not actually allowed to talk about it um but i'm Do gonna it. anyway um but for a, a high i'll say a high brand super italian supercar uh we were releasing a documentary in this year at some point um, which was a lot of fun. Mysterious. Very mysterious. What about you? Um, not a great deal. My biggest news of the week is that my brother-in-law, who had a mention in the last podcast, twice in It's a recurring fact, theme now. Yes. He is currently, as we speak, in hospital with his wife, who's having a baby. So Adam and, and Kirsten, best of luck. And by the time this is released, I expect they'll be at home wishing they'd never done it. Well, this is the perfect present to give them, I think, for congratulations on the newborn baby. It is indeed. Perhaps yeah. we should dedicate this podcast to Adam and Kirsten <laughs> and, and their new baby. I'm sure they'd be really happy with be. that, yeah. <laughs> so listen, we've got a, another special guest with us today. Um, a few key stats. He's uh, aged 58. Um, father to three girls. Uh, born in Stepney, East London. Um, started racing at a late age um, into his 20s where... Until then, he was working for his father's company, servicing um, naughty oil rigs. Um, has unfortunately got the tag as the world's unluckiest racing driver. Um, worked his way up through junior categories in Europe, uh, Formula Ford, Formula 3, F3000, uh, IMSA prototypes in the States, and many more. Uh, he's found himself testing for the Williams F1 team, Arrows and Benetton during the 1990s, and uh, made his bow in Formula 1 in 1992 with a, a lesser-known Italian team, um, Andrea Moda, formerly the Collini F1 team, founded by an Italian shoe designer called Andrea Sassetti. Um, in 2002, he released his autobiography, Flat Out, Flat Broke, which, of course, you can purchase um, on your Kindle. Um, 2002 to 2003, he was the infamous Stig, the very first Stig on uh, BBC's Top Gear, the Black Stig. Um, and, uh, and now plies his trade as a corporate and after-dinner speaker working for brands all around the world, um, and has obviously appeared on numerous television channels, um, BBC, NBC, Radio 1, Radio 4, Top Gear, Women's Hour, Sky News, the list goes on. Perry McCarthy, pleasure to have you. How are you? Yeah, no, good. Towels up and wagging. Um, I'm looking at a couple of things um, that's really got me excited. So, yeah, just trying to make everything happen and actually return to the track. Uh, it seems as if I've not had right. after quite a long layoff as in like 15 years, yeah. um, I've decided, no, it's time to come back. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really champing at the bit. Going back racing? Yeah. Is this out there? Do people know about this yet? Have we gotten uh, a little exclusive? No, well, I was going to say, we just chatted before and I was like, yeah. that, wait, did he this say that earlier ex- and I missed this it? This is no. exclusive. That is exciting. Uh, I just can't, because it's down to the, the championship themselves to make the announcement, I actually can't tell you. Oh. Could you give us any Gee, clues, so any hints? Uh, it's got four wheels. Has it got? A, has it got a tin top on it? Or a... it has. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a clue. It's not the British Touring Car Championship. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, it's something that is dynamite. 
and I, this is going to be mega. So anyway, when are we going to hear? Yeah, do we have a date? Ooh, did you, do you know, funny enough, in about three hours' time I can announce it, but it's going to be just after the interview. Oh, that's so disappointing. I'm joking. It's like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably inside, inside about next week, I think they're going to announce oh, right. it. So it's, yeah, that's, that's exciting. This It's all going. Yeah. yeah. So Perry, let's go back to the start. So um, as I said in your intro, you were fairly late to motorsport, mm. um, starting at 20 years old. Um, before that, working for your father, what, what drew you into motorsport? How did you get down um, from uh, working for your father on North Sea oil rigs through to becoming a, a racing driver? It was a complete fluke. It really was. I was at law, I was at college, pardon me, studying law, economics, art. And uh, a pal of mine there used to bring in these fantastic magazines, Grand Prix International, and they had these wonderful photographs. And I used to really enjoy drawing and, and, and drawing portraits predominantly, but I started drawing these cars. And the more I was drawing them, the more I was reading about the races, the more I was reading about the racing drivers, and I thought, these guys sound really cool. And at the same time, I found that driving on the road was um, something that I really enjoyed doing because I was rubbish at football, cricket, rugby and all the other. I really tried, but I just wasn't very good at it. But on the road, I found that, um, yeah, I could do some things with a car and people used to come and enjoy coming out for a ride with me. Um, and the police used to enjoy having a chat with me on the roadside <laughs> as well. So, um, Did you pick up lots of points in your younger days? Yeah, they said try and hold the car on an opposite lot. You mean those kind of points, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No. So if you were, so no, you actually, got, I haven't got any points on my license. My wife's got loads, but uh, I'm fine. Uh, you, you've passed them across to her, haven't you? You can nah. do that these days. You can't do that. Uh, it's, okay. it's only a gag. It's only a gag. What were you, what were you driving in uh, those days? A, a Ford 1.1 Escort. Ooh. Yeah. But 1.1. it did have extended wheel nuts, and I sprayed the wheel silver. And I reckon that got us another two miles an hour. Easy. Oh, yeah. It's made So, no, it was a pile of junk. I mean, it, it cost £90, and £90 was cheap even back yeah, then. Yeah. But it got me out on the road. And, and one day, I, was, I play a bit of piano. So one day I was demonstrating piano uh, in a pal's music shop. And this old boy came in, and I didn't realise it had been a setup. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to be a Formula 1 racing driver. And he was the chief instructor at Brands Hatch. And my mate had set it up. And he said, right, you're coming with me. So he took me to Brands. I took him around the track. And that was it. He, he was kind enough to say I was the best he'd ever seen. Wow. Well, he only started yesterday. but, yeah. um, <laughs> um, but So I thought, okay, well, that sounds cool. And then he introduced me to the circuit owners and made some phone calls. And then it basically came down. That as you had the rude awakening pretty quickly. Yeah. That if you want to go motor racing, somebody's got to be paying for it. Yeah. So that's when I took opportunity of going to work on the North Sea Oil Rigs. Right. And I stayed out there for two years coming back, finishing off my college, and then going back onto the rigs to get enough money to even start racing. So, so I was determined, even after that first adventure onto the track, to say, this is everything. I know this has got everything inside me that I want to do. Yeah. I love the speed, I love controlling stuff, I love cars, I love the power, and the precision, and I thought, yeah, I want to get better at this. And you had to remember all that when you was hanging from a piece of scaffold 150 foot above the ocean. Um, or Good sea, motivation for me. you, yeah. Yeah, seriously, yeah. because it's, you, you spend that long out there in freezing cold weather and you've got to remember what it's all about. Mm. I'm out here to get the money together to go motor racing. And you did need that kind of motivation to do it. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you had no previous karting experience or anything like that like everyone seems to do today. Did, did that hinder you, do you think? Did it yeah, help? sure. Um, because, you know, when I came in, um, you know, I was... I was very quick, um, but I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I mean, I yeah, the racecraft. Well, not even that. Even on my own, I was quite capable of smashing it into a wall because I've just, <laughs> just gone too far, taken too many risks without the appropriate amount of talent or experience to keep it on the road. So you make a big mistake. I wasn't clear how to get it back. Um, and the thing that stopped me quite often was the wall. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was not ideal. Yeah, I mean, I used to be six foot two before the accidents. <laughs> well, I suppose you learn quickly that way, don't you? You do, but it's also incredibly expensive because yeah. it burnt through my oil rig money uh, inside six races of 1982. So I'd set three pole positions from off the street. 1982? Yeah. I was one year old. You weren't even born. I won't even say that, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's... Uh, 
It's, it's amazing how time moves past because I remember at like 21, 22 years old, if I was looking at somebody who's 58, I'd think, yeah, and you're still alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Always good to see you in the morning. You survived another night. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You're reading so, my mind, Perry. How are you doing that? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, but that was the journey. And it was, certainly that was the beginning of it. And I knew that it was going to take more and more money. So even while I was racing, I was walking around industrial estates, knocking on doors, trying to chat the secretary up to get to meet the director or yeah. owner of a company or whatever to convince them that their company has been lucky to survive without backing me. And occasionally it worked. <laughs> and a few people would give me a couple of bob to keep going, keep holding on. Mm. But I knew that having done my six races, that the following year, you know, I had to do something fairly special because you, you've got it's no good being good. You've, you've got to do something special. You've yeah. got, and when you've got no money, you've got to get noticed. So I did go out, on, and luckily enough, I did win the championship uh, in 1983. So that was a big flag-waving exercise. And, and I would say even people inside F1 were you know, kind of taking a bit of notice of me, probably because I had a big mouth as well, but people could see that you know, I was pretty damn determined. Yeah. And so that was great to start making some friends, even at that stage in F1. But again, the problem was there was no money to progress properly for the following year. And in fact, um, you know, I was, uh, I think it was the second race of 1984. Um, I had a massive accident in Formula Ford, um, which broke my back. Oh, and gosh. that put me out for a whole bunch of months. No money, you got to recover from that. And, yeah. and then going back in 85, still in Formula Ford. And yeah. I didn't even want to do it. Yeah. I was going to say, what was your mentality after that? Was yeah, it? The, the mentality was this year on two and sixpence of a budget in 1985. And it showed. Mm. It really did. Because we were against a whole bunch of really great drivers. This is all funded by you knocking on doors, talking to different sponsors. Well, totally, yeah. yeah. And I also managed to get the vote for what was back then a little scheme called Racing for Britain. Yeah. But our budget, we were running on stupid, stupid money. We were running on like fourteen or fifteen thousand pounds for the year. Yeah. We couldn't test, couldn't have the engine rebuilt, la di da di da. Yeah, it sounds like a load of excuses, but it's you, you can't give that advantage away to these other guys yeah. and expect to be on their pace. Did you uh, this is something that actually came up with Kelvin on the last podcast was uh, in terms of budget, knowing that your your funds were so limited, did that affect the way that you drove? Did no. you think if I if I put this in the wall, no. what am I gonna do? No, no I can no. No, when I was getting in the car, I was giving it whatever I had. But I was finding, and you don't often hear me say this, in fact, this is the only time I've ever been really, really demoralized, is that I just did not want to be racing Formula Ford yeah. that year. And I think a combination of circumstances, lack of budget, and also, you know, heart not completely in it. Yeah. Uh, but there was never any time when I was backing out of anything because I was scared of that damaging the car and money. It did happen, and we ended up at the end of the season. I had to find another five thousand pounds from accident damage. Yeah, you know, which a mate of mine, who had recently got banned from driving, he had, had to sell his car. He lent me all the money. That's all the money he had in the entire world, and he lent me that with the hope that I would be going Formula Three with a proper budget the following year. Yeah, and then, lo and behold, bang! I did it. I've managed to bring a major sponsor to go Formula Three. And with all the other personal backing, I gave him his money back and bought him a holiday in Austria for him and his amazing, girlfriend. Amazing, amazing. So, so that was that your sort of turning point in your in your younger career, totally, yeah. where you thought, right, I've got this sponsor now, time to really make this serious. Well, I mean, it was, I, you know, I was I was quite pleased about winning the Formula Four Championship with such little racing behind. Uh, how me. old were you at this point? Twenty two. So you've got, you've got a strong head on you as well to keep your mindset like that. When all yeah, it's, well, yeah, yeah. But, but to me, there was no other choice. Is that I've, I've now said I'm going to get to Formula One. And I know that sounds, now being my age, looking back at that bloke who was saying it, you look at, you'd look at him now and say, you're an idiot. Yeah, yeah. The, the odds are against that, of getting to F1 with no money, no backing, no family money, all that kind of stuff. You're an idiot. It's never, ever going to happen. But that's where it's great to be an idiot sometimes because, you know, you, you just keep charging after everything and just keep trying to find a way. So getting into Formula 3 was fantastic. 
um, right back to the front immediately, um, which is great. And you keep making a mark. And then you're holding on for dear life, trying to get to Formula 3000. Then I went off to the America. And again, each of those times, by the time I got to Formula 3000, the economy had collapsed. And I'd done quite well in property from good money that I'd earned in Formula 3. So basically, I signed the house over to route to get that drive to go in Formula 3000 for just three races. Wow. That, that, that cost us the house. Yeah. Yeah. Know? But who cares? Yeah. It's whatever it takes. Yeah. You know? Sacrifice and I still believed I could get to Formula 1. At what <laughs> point did the Formula 1 teams come knocking? Because you've tested with various teams um, in the 90s. When did they sit up, sit up and take notice and think, let's get this guy in a car? I guess it started getting real serious when I joined the route Formula 3000 team. Now, the route was unfortunately seriously off the pace. Most people weren't qualifying the car. Um, so I was with the works car uh, with Ron Torinac, the legendary Ron Torinac. And I kept putting it on the grid. Now, sure, I was only putting it on the grid like 14th or 15th or something like that, but the others weren't even qualifying. So it was showing Ron something like that because my teammate was about goodness an awful lot slower mm. you know yeah. and so inside you're going well look i can't win the race but i'm winning my own battle by being considerably faster than the teammate that's something as a race driver you've got to do you're not always in a great car with a great team but if you can show something in your surroundings that's your opportunity to shine so this is the optimist in me you've got to hold on to something that can be good and fight for that. So for me, qualifying 15th was like putting it on pole yeah. when you've just totaled your teammate. Because that's showing the team, hey, there's nothing left to come. This yeah. bloke's on the edge. Yeah. So Ron, behind my back, actually was chatting Ken Tyrrell about putting me into Tyrrell. And that got really close to happening. Ken had me down there. But then suddenly, there was a thing with Michele, Michele Alberto going on about cigarette sponsorship. Michele was backed by Marlborough, and I think the team then got Camel. So McKay, it's it's all in my book, flat out, flat broke. Yeah. Plug, plug. <laughs> Normally nine nine nine. Published by Haynes, available in a good. I can see a couple of yeah, copies over there. Copies here. Yeah, no, it's going really well. We sold another copy just last month. Um, <laughs> just a single, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He still keeps in contact. Um, but it's so uh, there was this chance, but it was for two Grand Prix with Tyrrell. But Johnny, who had recently been laid off by Benetton earlier that year. Then suddenly Ken chose to bring Johnny back. And look, you know, crikey, I can't argue with that. I yeah. think the world of Johnny is a brilliant racing driver. But that was, it was just those moments in time where you, you're just about to step into a Tyrrell. And yeah, I'm not unique in this. There's been a lot of other drivers who have been exactly that same point. But you go, ah, damn it. Okay, but if it can happen that close, then maybe it can happen again. Yeah. So you know that you're on the radar from what you're doing. And that's the most important thing. Yeah, I can't remember what the question was, but that was the answer. Well, I like it. And then Williams F1 team, Arrows, Benetton. Well, the States was before all that. And how did it go out there? Brilliantly. Yeah, I, I got really lucky. Um, that's uh, Roger Cowman, who I'd just finished driving for in Formula 3000. And, you know, from no testing, borrowed tyres, everything else against Alacy, Comas, Bernard Irving, etc. Yeah. Yeah, we were kind of, yeah, we were right. We were pushing them uh, for just the few races that we had. So that was super. And it was because of that, then there was an opportunity to go IMSA in America. Yeah. And Roger knew a guy called uh, Julian Randalls. And Julian used to be the team manager of the Theodore Formula One team. And Julian was running Spice USA. So Spice is a chassis. We had the Chevrolet engines. The team was running on 300,000 bucks and we were against the works Jaguar, the works Nissan, the works Toyota, works Porsche teams who were on squillions and I could go faster than them. We wouldn't last though, that's the problem. But I knew that this is a chance to, to wave the flag again, yep. to say if I can keep doing a, a David and Goliath on this, keep putting the car right at the front in qualifying at least, to show, look guys, I can do this, please, have a look, you know? Then it was advertising. Yeah. And the boys back here on the press, the UK press, they've always been, you know, people like David Tremaine especially, 
Joe Sayward and Simon Aaron, and you keep going through this long list, Alan Henry, all, all the very well-known journalists were always trying to push my cause, trying to create a bit of attention. So they used everything I was doing in America to, to keep waving the flag, yeah. saying, Perry's yeah. doing the this. The Brit abroad, yeah. That's right, doing and having thing. a chat with people in F1. Yeah. And then suddenly, when that half chance came up with Formula One with Andrea Moda, I was the name in the frame. Yeah. So that's how it happened. So nobody ever does anything totally by themselves. And it's so wonderful when people do kind of latch on to what you're about and believe in you because that means so much when you when you've just lost the house when you're in hundreds of thousand pounds worth of debt when you haven't got a regular drive you're not getting paid you haven't to find a way to survive every week and then go and take these guys on on top of that no manager no trainer no special dietitian you know it's all about you and having the heart to do it and i don't mean to sound big-headed this isn't pity poor eyes and i haven't got the violin out i'm just completely telling you what the deal was and what it was like but I must tell you that by the time I got on track and we had a little chat off air earlier mm. about hunger mm. I was chewing through the steering wheel by the time I was on track yeah, yeah. and yeah. that hunger I've still got it for whatever deal I'm into or for whatever I'm doing I, I can't take second best yeah or I'm not about to it's, set it's out in you. To, it's it is in, in me you. and I think today you know that that hunger is is there or, or not there more so than it has been through the years with the likes of big pay drivers coming in and perhaps replacing some of the title sponsors who um, have faded away a little bit and you've got these guys coming in with horrendously deep pockets or deep or deep pocketed parents yeah. who will literally buy their way into a, a Formula One team and they perhaps don't have that innate drive and mm. hunger to, uh, to really make it to the top of the sport it's you know, do you have a strong opinion on, on the whole pay driver label, or is it sort of something that's part and parcel has been a part of you know motorsport for years? I really, think it's how been, it works. It's been part of motorsport for years, yeah. and you know, even the drivers that one might term pay drivers or label them. I mean, these guys are still sitting in those bloody things. You know, yeah. There's the, those these Formula One cars are unbelievably fast. So, you know, they're not complete donuts, you know, <laughs> and, and as one of them in particular shows, it's quite enigmatic in a way, is that suddenly you'll turn in some really good performances, and then other times you don't even know he's out there. But that, that can apply to a few people, to be honest. So it's like the truth will out in the end is that if they've been given the opportunity, great, take it, squeeze it. I would, you know, if my parents were unbelievably rich, I'd be doing the garden at the weekend, shining the shoes, anything. Tell them how much I love them, how good looking they are, and how funny and intelligent they are. Whatever it took. Here's your name on the side of the car. go racing, yeah. Yeah. I can be a loving son proportional to budget. Um, So it could have, you know, whatever it takes, they've got that opportunity. Squeeze it. That's great. Get in the car. But then you've got to deliver, you know. And it is difficult because there's, again, there's, I've got, one quality that I believe I've got in life. So I hope this qualifies anything I say. I have never, ever been jealous of anybody. Ever. I've got plenty of faults, believe me. But I've never, I'm not jealous of anybody. I'm not jealous of anybody from whatever cheat. I admire people. I absolutely do. I think fantastic, that's it. But even when I used to lose a race, I actually used to go to the bottom of the podium and look at the guys standing up there and just go, well done, boys. Well done. It didn't stop me thinking, but I want to be standing where you are. Yeah. You know? But I'd always go and applaud and say, well done. Yeah. It's a good me. trait. Great trait. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's just, it is true. So when I'm talking about the well-heeled drivers that we're discussing, there's no, there's no spite or bitterness. It's just a question of saying, okay, fine. You've got the chance. I'm the one to advocate. Yeah. Is, is Get the parents' money. But you've got to deliver. Yeah. You've yeah. got to deliver and you've got to show that heart. Well, I think, but I think that's half the problem with some of these drivers. I mean, okay, you know, let's not beat around the bush. There's people like Lance Stroll, okay, who's a, probably everyone's favourite example, who sometimes just does not look interested. You know, he just sometimes just disappears into the back of the pack and doesn't want to be there, doesn't put his foot through the floor and just, you think, come on, you know, what an opportunity, you're a Formula One racing driver, pull your finger out. 
Yeah, well, I, when you look at drivers like that, I want to ask, how do you have your mentality that you have now? Have you always had that since you first started? Because, you know, a lot of, look, look at Lance Stroll. He's a very young guy. You could probably blame a lot of his stuff being on, on youth and, and, you know, ignorance, perhaps. Have you always had that mentality? Cause it's quite impressive to have that when you're first starting at the age of 22. So what mentality? Sorry, so just, just being not jealous of anything, being focused on yourself and, and totally being focused able to on myself. admire. I mean, this is why, this is why I'm motor racing. Yeah. To be completely honest, there weren't many drivers that worried me as far as their talent was concerned because there were certain people that I definitely had an eye on thinking, wow, you're good, you know, really good. I mean, Johnny comes to mind, to be quite honest, and the Lacey, you know, and you think, wow, wow, wow. Mm. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter what they did because it's about me. Mm. It's the, if I'm worried about them, I've got to work harder. I've got to go faster than them. Yeah. So, you know, having anything saying, oh, it's all right for you, you're in a better car, a better team, it doesn't matter. Well, it's it a waste of energy as well. Yeah, you know, it's you know, a waste of energy. That's not a stress you don't need. It yeah. doesn't, it doesn't yeah. change my position. All I can do is concentrate on me, trying to make me as good as, good as I can be yeah. and let the others get on with it, you know? Yeah. And I must admit, you know, certainly back then, there were so many times racing wheel to wheel with these guys is the you know i'd like the it was always hard racing but one thing i don't remember is all this weaving mm. all over the place you know mm. it was just there was a bit more of a respect anyway i've probably gone slightly off the that's right no, i don't mind a tangent so you, yeah. so you mean that what weaving under as in defending yeah. when, when defending or yeah yeah. yeah, well, you're not going to weave if you're out in the lead just for a laugh, are you? Well, you never know. Warm up the tyres <laughs> a little bit. Maybe if you've, got a real, if you've got a real advantage, you may as well. That's what I do. Uh, maybe that's why I'm not a racing driver. Yeah. Well, you're just, just trying to be a bit more interesting for the TV well, to get the sponsors at, a bit Sometimes more you look at Hamilton going out there, you go, oh, spice it up a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so you're, you're not impressed with the current state of, uh, of Formula One, are you? Or, or Look, there's so much about Formula One I absolutely love. Yeah. I, I, really do and I'm, I'm still into it and sure we're going to get the occasional race that's a little bit processional that was always the way but there are absolutely certain things in Formula 1 that I would what well, I've been advocating particular changes for a real long time now I'm not exactly expecting Liberty Media or Formula 1 itself to jump up and say well Perry said you know <laughs> it's a, but you know certain other people I'm, there are some extremes that I've got is that I, I'm rather hoping your uh, listening audience is fairly up to speed on aerodynamics. So, you know, one of the big problems about following a car is the air disturbance mm. of the car in front. So, these Formula One cars, the, 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 a race car, a top level race car, is pretty much about the management of air. It's the management of air around it, the management of air over it, the management of air under it the management of air through it of course the curling and where all that air starts is on the front wings yep. and development and the sophistication of the front wings is absolutely incredible but so is their cost yep. so if we've got this front wing system that's creating this state of the art work of art thing of beauty in the corners on its own to just go really really fast but then gets completely messed up as soon as it starts following another car, let's get rid of the front wings. Yeah. Or make them spec. Well, just get rid of the front wings. You know, because we've got too much that I don't think you can ever go back to spec anymore. That nobody's going to have that. So just get rid of the front wings. You know, then at least from the actual very front of the car, there's not that uh, much of a performance change. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, they'll find another way to help it out with barge balls, etc. But get rid of the front wings yeah what about um your issues with formula one that, that you've encountered with in the past so you, we were well, if we go back to your career we were in america what was the next progression after that you went back to the uk for some formula one yeah well i mean after the states um you know everything i was doing in the states is to get the attention um because that's what it's about you know you, if you want to be a formula one driver you've got to get attention and that's with you know your speed all your results, or both. Yeah. Um, so, in principle, that worked. Um, but it's the old adage: be careful what you wish for. You might just get it because. <laughs> Welcome, when, Andrew Moda. That's the thing. So I thought, you know, cock a hoop, you know, champagne, champagne corks, etc. You know, I've been accepted into Formula One. 
I thought it was going to be a fight, um, but that's one of the reasons that I was I got the drive. They said they want somebody who's just not going to moan and complain. He's yeah. just going to bite through the steering wheel, as I said, <laughs> and do everything possible with this tiny little team, this black beast. Um, well, we couldn't do anything with it. No, <laughs> so, no. I mean, this thing. When did you realise that? Right from the off. <laughs> right from the off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this thing was. It was all black, you know. And this wasn't just slow. It was dangerous. Yeah. I mean, what we should have done is just had brass handles put on the side to save time. Because when it killed me, it just lowered me down into a six foot <laughs> steel in it. It was the right car. And you had some really genuinely scary experiences. I, with I this did, team. when I saw them, I couldn't believe them. Yeah. What, what, I, it felt like something you'd write in a film script or something. Like well, that. yeah. I mean, it's just it's you know there should be a new book how to kill your driver yeah because as i say we we weren't just the slowest car out there but we were easily easily the most dangerous you know so but you're trapped as a race driver i mean bernie paid me a big compliment once he said he's a brave little bastard i wouldn't get in that thing sitting in a pit lane (laughs) (laughs) which i said to him afterwards thanks for that bernie that's great um but you know you're, you're desperate, you're a racer, and I'm going to try and drag this thing around. But, you know, when they're putting components on the car that they knew weren't working, and the steering wheel fails in the middle of Eau Rouge at Belgium, that's, oh even, a, even a slow car's pulling 180 miles an hour there. What's the worst place on the planet you could possibly have that kind of thing happen? There's a, uh, there's a few things that, you know, there's a bunch of permutations that aren't great mm. for a race driver, but, um, but that's certainly one of them. What about the uh, the wet tire dry track situation again that was about insane that. That but was how a, does that even, how how did that i can't get my head around why they would even why how someone could be in their right mind and send you out like that yeah what? there were a bunch of people trying to work that one out yeah. harry honestly so they sent me out on what was virtually a dry track on wet tires um by then i'd had enough i went out the first lap i did i was actually joint fastest yeah but the second lap the tires were falling apart yeah. i stayed flat coming over the start finish line on the grass and I was changing up because I didn't care anymore I thought I'm going to smash this thing to pieces and then I got really lucky on the next lap the clutch failed which meant I couldn't do anything anymore because my head had gone a bit by then just going I'm going to start doing things here which is going to really get me hurt so you know but I kind of I had a t-shirt made up by then I designed it it said let pow out because it was a it was a fake protest T-shirt because I was being put on the circuit for so little time. Yeah. So is this is this around the time that you started to be coined the world's unluckiest racing driver? Well, yeah, I think so. But also, there were a whole bunch of races that I'd led. I mean, there were like five Formula Three races um, that I'd led or was challenging for lead when the car went wrong. You know. Um, Formula Three Thousand. No, probably wasn't unlucky in Formula Three Thousand, but in the states. Again, from the amount of races I did in the States, led an awful lot of them. And I'm not hard on a car. Yeah. But, you know, if there's no engine rebuilds and if there's no testing, something's going to break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'd be leading, leading, leading. It was like the Daytona 24 hours. With two hours to go, was three laps in the lead from the Works Ferrari team. Two hours to go. And then the engine went. And you just look up and you go, oh, give me a break. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, And... your mental state. So you, you get to Formula One. You think no, you could probably it. just leave it as that, Tim. Your mental yeah. state. <laughs> yeah. Or your mental. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Full stop. End of story. Where's my sandwiches? So, so you get to Formula One and then that's box ticked from and you, since you first and then started, it all isn't it? And then falls apart with, with Andrew Moda. And you, I mean, what did you think? Is, is it like, this is it? This is, the, this is the end of the road for me? Well, not just that, but, you know, I kind of... I, I got to Formula One because I thought I was incredibly fast and if you don't think that you've got no right being in a race car you know a lot of other people did as well so it was actually embarrassing you know I'd, I was walking through a paddock like the mutt of the pit lane yeah, yeah I'd, I'd come from being flash airy in the states to like muttly at the end of the pit lane in, in formula one you know i just felt experience. you know it's i felt in quite literally embarrassed to look at certain drivers in the eye thinking yeah. You must think I'm useless. This is how it's... Because honestly, people don't have time to go through, you know, all your ins and outs and the problems you're facing. It's just black and white. You look like an idiot. You look so bad. 
did that affect any potential offerings from other teams in the pit lane when you were looking out for maybe other drives? There was, I mean, fortunately enough, I, I was offered a couple of drives for the following season, but they needed me to bring a little bit, not massive, but just a little bit of sponsorship. Well, I had got the Andre Moda drive without bringing any sponsorship. I wasn't getting paid and I had to find my own expenses to even get to the races, but at least I didn't have to find money to get into Formula One. Mm. But these other teams, you know, you're talking about things like LaRousse, maybe Tyrrell, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they needed, I don't know, 400 or 500,000 quid. I didn't have it. We had no house left anymore. And um, so it just wasn't going to happen. I, I couldn't make it happen to get in a proper car. And was that the end of um, Andrea Moda and, yeah. and Andrea Sassetti? Was it that, that they left Formula One presumably when they ended up being booted out essentially by the FIA and that yeah, was Yeah, they were done. told to run two cars correctly because, you know, my teammate was a Brazilian driver called Roberto Moreno. Now, Roberto is like a, a proven, you know, um, driver. is very, very good indeed. And they couldn't run him properly and that's where all the efforts were going, let yeah. alone running me yeah. properly. Did you ever get any kind of explanation at all for any of the things that happened? I didn't no. need any explanation. It was quite clear they didn't know what they were doing. Right. Yeah, you know. Well, they made shoes, didn't they? That was their. Uh, their you know business. what? I'm not clear. That's where their money came from because I tried a pair on once and thought nobody's going to be buying these. Uh, <laughs> no good. <laughs> Fancy schmancy Italian shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what followed? What? What? Uh, you, you've finished your your F1 career with, the, with possibly the worst F1 team in history. That was it. There was one chance, and it was with Williams um, to become their test driver. But there was a bloke called David. What's his surname? Cool, cool something. Yeah, never heard of him. No, never mind. Nah, I don't, know who don't think about. he made it. No. So <laughs> it was between me and Dave, and um, and the team made the decision to go with David. Um, when I wrote a copy of my book, I um, I can't tell you exactly what I put on the inside cover, <laughs> but I sent Dave a copy saying, "Thanks for <clears throat> my career. You <clears throat> lots of love, pal." Right. So. Um, he said he keeps it by his bedside table to remind him how it could have all gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. When he wrote a copy of his book, he sent me one through the post. I've opened it out and said, Dear Pell, I, I, I owe it all to you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Love, Dave. <laughs> Which I thought was cool. But, you know, it's, again, going back to that jealousy thing, is that there was that, there was that moment in time, um, I think Dave had already had a lot of things going on inside Williams, and if he has, that's the deal. Use them, strangle them, do whatever it takes to get that drive. And that's what happened. Yeah. David got that drive. Um, plus the fact David was a lot younger than me. Um, I don't know if he was faster. I don't really know. Whatever. Let's park that one. So Williams obviously thought, hey, listen, this, this guy's on the way up. You know, where's Perry anyway? So mm. from Williams' position, totally understand. It didn't feel as if I got a fair crack at a whip of yeah, it, but yeah. that's life. And but it was immediately after the Williams thing, we were in so much trouble at home. You know, as I say, you know, no house, massive debts, etc. And I had to down tools and just start going out and getting involved in trading, whatever it was, buying and selling stuff, and trying to earn a living for the family for the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, because we were finished. So where did that money come from to live for the next few years? Oh, it's, I'd, I'm, I'm bloody good at spotting deals. Yeah, so I had a friend Just of mine hustling. who was, yeah, absolutely hustling. He was in reclaimed furniture, so I'd do this, that went into office supplies. Oh, wow. I'd find a package, find somebody to buy it, find the, you uh, know, huh. all that, get in the middle of stuff up there. Even went to welding rods, I remember, you know? So, um, yeah, I've told you I was a bright spark. Uh, oh, oh, thank you very much. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> hey, thank you. Um, so it carried on like that. And then suddenly Richard Lloyd phoned up and said uh, he wanted to look at me for joining the Audi British Touring Car Championships. Yeah. And I thought, okay, great. You know, because Richard had run me for a race uh, with Porsche in the Mexico Round of the World um, Endurance Championship. So then he said, okay, I've been waiting for an opportunity. That's it. Audi. Da -da -da -da. Then suddenly that didn't happen. But it had whetted my appetite now to get back in and come back on. And I managed to put a deal together with Lotus um, to come back in the um, GT World Championship, uh, partnering with Jan Lammers. Right. 
So that got me back on the way then. Then I joined Chrysler as one of their first works drivers for Le Mans. And then all that brought me to the attention of panels. And I signed with Dave Brabham yeah. to be with the panels team and also Andy Wallace and James Weaver. And Andy was Andy Wallace was one of the instrumental people in getting me that drive there. My old Formula Three team, man. Yeah, yeah. Great, great guy, Andy, and he really backed me up. Yeah, you know, he was in a position to, and he did. So that got me right back on it. And then, of course, just a little while later, joined Audi properly for their uh, incumbent season into World Sports Cars, right. you know, Le Mans, Sebring. So that really started bringing me back through. But and thank goodness, you know, as as from you know panels etc., I started getting paid, you know very well indeed yeah so you know we were we were bailing out that sunk ship and we'd risen yeah yeah there must um, have been a huge relief after that you know a few years of, of turmoil it was it was tricky you know and you know you do have moments where you're thinking it's all crashed and burned you you know it's all it's all fallen apart but you can't sit there and be depressed no you can't well you can but you're going to go nowhere if you are. Yeah, it's I don't have the luxury or didn't have the luxury of having enough money to be depressed. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry, there's no spurge on mental health issues here, but I'm just talking about from my own situation is that even though certain parts of me felt like wrapping up in a ball, you know, because I was so hurt by what had happened in Formula 1, I was not going to let people see that. But, you know, I was passionate about yeah. this game. It had taken everything and a lot lot more than most people put in so for it to end so badly was a little bit it felt cruel now in life out there when we look at the plight of many poor people in relation to their plight yeah, it's nothing it's all you relative know? though isn't but it? it but but for me at that moment in time my own hopes dreams and aspirations yeah you're going oh yeah. goodness yeah but you you do need to keep a balance you need to realise that there is life after understeer, you know. <laughs> um, and there's, if you're determined enough, there's maybe a way back. And that is what I will say to everybody who's in a dark situation. There is a way back. Do you talk about much of this in your book, uh, Flat Out, Flat Throat? What's, what's in the book? I, I talk about how I feel, but I don't get profound <laughs> about it. Right. Um, I was probably getting slightly profound then, but I just. I liked it. But, but I am kind of profound. I am passionate about this. Yeah. Is that you know, I I meet so many people say, oh yeah, I could have been a racing driver. Why why weren't you? Oh well, it's all about the money. Well, okay, fine. Yeah. But Make I used to spend. People used to laugh that I was spending four or five hours a day walking around industrial estates, knocking on doors, making phone calls, sending letters out, and just not giving up. Mm. So, oh, it was about the money. That's why I went a race driver. Oh, well, maybe there'd been a couple more barriers where it didn't work for you, where you couldn't fight through that. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you one thing. There are an awful lot of people who race cars. There are very few racing drivers. And I believe that that's all wrapped up in this, in this attitude. Yeah. You know? No, I'm totally with you. I mean, in, in a previous life, I was a, a racing driver manager. And I, I dealt with a lot of young drivers, some incredibly good, um, some thriving today. Jamie Chadwick, one of them, who's doing an incredible job in the W Series, um, and um, looked after a, a lot of young drivers. And, and some of them had that that drive, and some of them didn't. It's just in them, or it wasn't. And, and you can't you can't necessarily teach that kind of drive. You know, it's, it's there or it isn't. Listen, we we could talk Formula One um, all day, but there are some other bits we want to touch yeah, on. Yeah, sure. Um, Stiggy, let's talk Stig. So yeah, Top Gear comes calling. Top Gear. How? It was one of those things about timing. You know, you're saying about the world's unluckiest racing driver. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, there were, there's, <laughs> unfortunately, there were quite a lot of things that support that a little bit. However, I was terribly lucky with the whole Top Gear thing because I'd written a book about all my ups and downs. And, you know, as you know, it's, everybody said, look, Perry, all the stunts and the disasters and the way you've got out of it. And, you got to write this book, so I did. And we had this great party, a real brilliant book launch at the Audi showrooms in Green Park in London. And we had a lot of friends there from Formula One and some from TV and stuff like that. And Jeremy, I'd known Jeremy for a while anyway, so Jeremy was there and pretty much took me to one side afterwards and said, hey, listen, Top Gear had been off air for a long time by then. He said, well, look, we're bringing Top Gear back and we want to put an idea past you and stuff like that. 
and it ended up being, you know, you're gonna be this secret, mean, moody race driver um, dressed in black because, of course, Stig was in black. Yeah. First off, so you're gonna wear black boots, black overalls, black gloves, black crash helmet, black visor, and we're going to call you the Gimp. <laughs> no, they didn't. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> no. Yeah. And, no. And they were they were real serious. And I said, no, 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 no. No, no, we're not doing that one. No, it's going to come out one day and I'm not going to walk down the street being known as the gear. Yeah, no. You know? So oh. finally, that's when it ended up as being the, the stick. But, um, but yeah, there was something that was pretty funny actually is that talking to them and they said, um, okay, you've got to keep it quiet. I said, yeah, well, I understand. Yeah, top secret. I said, yeah, I won't tell anybody. They said, um, I said, well, I'm going to have to tell the wife. They said, no, no, you can't tell the wife. So I said, no, no, trust me. I'm going to have to tell the wife. I said, no, you can't. You can't tell the wife. I said, no, boys, trust me. I'm going to have to tell the wife. And they said, why? I said, listen, you try it leaving the house six o'clock in the morning, just for metaphor in black leather. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> saying, don't worry, darling, I should be home around midnight, but nothing's going on. Yeah. I said, I see your point. You can tell the wife. Thanks. <laughs> well, off that, we, uh, we've had some questions that have come in from, from various people on, on social media. Um, so I'm going to chuck a few at you. So on sure. that note... Was it hard to keep the secret of the stick? That's from uh, Becky. Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, um, because you just want to shout about it. A little I, bit, I don't know because it's it was a really exciting thing to happen. When you see it on TV and you go no, no, on Top Gear and, and everybody's going, "Who's the stick? Who's the stick?" I mean, I'd be down the pub and I could hear people saying, "Who do you reckon the stick is?" And I think, "Well, you're standing next to him, actually." Yeah, right? you know. But I never said anything. Not even for free lager, I didn't give it away. But um, <laughs> but it, it was quite exciting. A couple of people did guess immediately inside my. It's always rumours, aren't it? It was me, yeah, because I've got bandy legs, and I always used to stand with my arms folded, because I had call cool to be upset enough at racetrack. So people kind of used to me well, standing there yeah. with my arms folded. Like the one we've got here on the absolutely, the yeah. yeah. So brilliant. It, it was tough because it was so exciting to everybody, yeah. and you're thinking, "Wow, I'm right at the centre of this." But I didn't publicise it. I didn't say anything, mm. and that was it. Um, so no, I didn't. I did. I'd shaken hands. So yeah. I don't give the game away if I shake hands. Okay. Um, Billy has asked, uh, "What does the inside of the suit smell like?" <laughs> Which that's not really suit? come from Mark Blundell, is it? Because Billy's his nickname. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But, um, that that and how many different helmets were there? Oh, and, what does the inside of the Stig's suit? Yeah. Smell like? Yeah, it's, no, it's <laughs> not going to be tell, pretty. Tell Billy that I do actually shower every day. <laughs> um, so and also wash uh, the overalls. So no, that that was no problem. Yeah. And I only had one crash helmet. Okay. Yeah. Um, Eleanor has asked, are any of the did they they must have done this in the first season because I can't remember when they introduce you uh, in the in the studio. Jamie Cartman always goes. Some say, yeah, yeah. Were any of those stories ever true? Did you have any say over that, or was no. it, or you were quite a separate entity yeah. almost no, to that, that, that side that's of things? That's totally down to Jeremy's yeah. imagination. Yeah. <laughs> and he did come up with a few cool oh, guests, he did. Didn't he? Yeah. What well, on that? Who was your favourite Top Gear presenter? Emma's asked that one. Uh, you know, so this isn't politically correct. I actually liked all three of them yeah. and still do. It. Yeah, uh, there's no, there's no side. I think that they're, you know, I, I think James has been a revelation. Um, because the others had kind of media backgrounds before, whereas James May didn't have so much. And James is... He was more of a journalist, right? Was he more, more, yeah, yeah, really, way journalist. more of a journalist. Yeah. But they are... All three are super TV presenters, but they're also each very good writers. And that's one of the things that they've got. It's not just being on stage saying something dumb. You know, it's what they're saying is either informative or entertaining yeah. or both. And then that that kind of relationship the three had on the Top Gear stuff kept us entertained as viewers. So, but seriously, no, absolutely no favourite. Uh, I like them all. And yeah. I think they do, a, I think they're all really talented guys, actually. Yeah. Really and uh, just a final couple of stick questions from uh, Emma again. So when your time came uh, to an end, being yeah. the stick, did you have any say over who the next stick was? Did you have to do any training with them? Uh, no, my time came to an end uh, quite literally because... I'd been racing for Audi and, you know, commercially speaking, that was, apart from being so enjoyable to be with Audi, uh, commercially it was very good. Mm. Um, and I was training, I was testing, I was traveling, etc. Um, we'd found how big Top Gear had become uh, as a commercial success across the world. We found exactly 
how big Stig had become. And I did quite rightly feel that I've brought some stuff to the party as Stiggy on Harry behaved because they wasn't going to have him so snotty before, you know, because I just used to turn around and walk off when somebody was speaking <laughs> because that was, that was me just saying, these are all the things a race driver really wants to do. To do yeah. They just wants to drive, yeah. you know, but the Stig could do that. It didn't have to be sociable. It didn't have to have a personality. It could just revert back into this prehistoric driver <laughs> thing, you know? Um, so we, I definitely had loads of fun with that. Um, but when it came time to renegotiate, because I'd said, okay, I'd continue for the second season. I said, but, you know, we really need to talk about where I'm going to be going in the future, guys. And we got to that point, and they wanted me to sign on the same terms as I had been on. And I said, I don't want to do that. I said, you know, we need to seriously up the ante. And they didn't want to do that. So I said, okay, we'll see you later. And they said, okay, bye. Oh, so, no, but that was fine. You know, it's like, you know, they, they didn't want to pay me anymore for being on there. That's their prerogative. Yeah. But it's equally my prerogative to say, listen, I'm a racing driver. There's only so much of going around and around in family road cars or even yeah. supercars that I'm worried about. Because, mm. you know, I'm not racing anybody. I'm, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I was always trying, but that wasn't my core being. Yeah. So I was quite happy to leave it alone. Yeah. And then Ben Collins, wasn't it, that went on? Was it Ben Collins after? Was he after, after? I can't remember. Yeah, he was, he was uh, then came in as white stick. Yeah. Well, and then I guess was white stick. I won't give away the uh, hand signal that's being portrayed as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's all. Thank you for the questions on the stick. I hope they were all answered. Of them. Yeah, yeah, there were quite a few. Oh, and uh, Richard, uh, do you still live in Essex? Yes, I do. There we go. Uh, Essex boy, through and through. Okay, I've got one for you. Uh, not stick related. Um, what are you rubbish at? Putting up with bad manners. Good one. Yeah. Uh, as I said earlier, I've got a whole bunch of thoughts. I'm, I'm pretty intolerant. I try to be tolerant, but I guess my level of intolerance kicks in a lot faster. Are you one of, of those people like me who, if you walk past or if you drive past someone who, for example, um, throws a sweet wrapper on the floor, you have to stop, get out of the car and tell them to pick it up? Yeah. It's around my way you might get stabbed doing that but <laughs> no I'm joking um, it's yeah I just I just feel that there's a way to go about life and I just appreciate people being mannered and considerate uh, don't, don't, don't have to agree with you on stuff or, and, and vice versa but you know I, I'm intolerant of bad manners I'm also intolerant of people who take forever on a deal on a business deal or something like that I think get some balls yeah you know forget for God's sake, grow some, take a risk, throw the dice, or just step out and say no. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. with my career, believe me, I understand no in 37 different languages. Yeah. Yeah. But it's nice to hear it rather than being dragged through a sponsorship thing or another presentation or whatever, and you're just going, for Completely. goodness sake, yeah. come on. Yeah. You know? I think that for me, a lot of this is my fault. That one of the things that um, kind of suited me about motor racing was it was so intense that it was just flat out you're doing this you're doing that and it's now 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 and still after all these years I can't quite get my head around how slow so many people are or departments are or mm. companies are and yeah. what they have to go through to consider and just so you know that that just it's it is part of life but I find that still incredibly difficult. It rubs you up the wrong and, way. And I do everything I can to try and sort, short circuit that and try and make sure that people can come to get a decision going. But it's this mediocrity. I understand failure. Believe me, I've failed sadly so many times on so many different things. Luckily enough, I have had a whole bunch of success. But I, you won't find me in the middle because I, I've got no time for mediocrity. And I guarantee you, all my friends are not mediocre. They, they might have failed as well, or they might be highly successful, mm. but they're not mediocre. And that's, that's how I look at stuff. A um, couple more for you. I know we're, we're tight on time, so I'll, I'll whiz through these. Um, if you could give yourself a score uh, from one through 10, but you cannot use the number seven, how weird are you? 
I think all racing drivers are a bit silence. weird. <laughs> Good question. Um, I kind of. I think that I I don't know. It's really cranky. I'd I'd never thought of it like that. I I guess that. Uh, um, I, I just think that the, the weirdness, I don't know. I think that... If you could use the number seven, would you have that? <laughs> I, I think that it appears weird to people on how completely straight I am about the de- level of determination and what I, what I want and how I see things and when I want them. And that's for everybody's benefit, not for mine. So maybe people think that's weird or they feel maybe weird is a word that I can't... I, can, I don't know if I can mix that into this... I, I don't know if, you know, probably I'm weird. The weirdest I've felt is trying to describe how weird I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. it's, are you sure number seven's still taken? Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't answer the I question. Think, I, I think know. you've more than answered it, actually, with that. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> okay, I've got three more for seven. you. Seven. got three more for you. It's a seven. I've got three more for you. What's got you excited at the moment? Uh, returning to racing. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you know what? I nearly said what I was going to be coming oh. in. <laughs> nearly got him. Yeah, yeah. No, this is going to be... Oh, I tell you, honest to God. I'm, I'm excited about <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, so am I. Yeah, I really am excited. Um, oh. And that's going to be great fun. And I, there's one giveaway I can tell you. It's going to start happening at the end of July. End of July, okay. Yeah. Well, when it does happen, yeah. we'll come and meet you at a track. Perfect. And we'll talk about it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if not racing and all the public speaking that you do now, um, which you haven't even had a chance to get onto, but that's a whole other subject, but another, another part of your life. Um, the book, etc. what would you be doing? Writing, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoy writing. And, and actually, a, a project that I have got coming up is that I'm going to be turning the book into an audio book. Yeah. Uh, I haven't done that quite yet because I'm trying to tie up a couple of uh, marketing deals to make sure that when I do do it, that it does have an impact. Yeah rather than wallowing into the yeah. ether. Um, and that's a project that I'm looking forward to. Um, but I, I like, I have, I've always liked writing and um, yeah, the, the experiences and, and trying to, I guess I've always liked, ever since I was a kid, I've like, it's just in me. I like trying to make people laugh, you know? Oh. It's, it's Perry's phone from the 1960s. It's, Karen Mob. Yep, that's the wife. <laughs> Shall I answer it? Yes, please. Karen? <laughs> Hi, it's Tim here. We're just interviewing your husband. We're nearly done. <laughs> it's okay. Do you want me to pass on a message? <laughs> yeah. I, w- I will indeed. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, bye. Could you call her back when you're done? Yeah. Lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Final question for you. Um, How much of your success is about luck and right place, right time, and how much is down to sheer hard work? I mean, I think that the the timing, you know, at the book launch with uh, Jeremy being there and the Stiggy thing, that was, you know, I had no input on that except the fact that I'd written a book, except the fact that we'd had this part, and except the fact that Jeremy had been invited. So, you know, I was probably an easy solution for them. But there's no question about it. That was actually just good fortune. Um, and they felt that I was the kind of bloke who could keep the secret. So, you know, as I say, I shake hands, I shake hands, and that's it. But generally, you know, I often wish there was a thing as just complete fluke and luck, and there is. But, but you can't, you can't, uh, budget on that you can't look to a future that is just about luck so unfortunately I've found that it's about an awful lot of hard work and commitment and dedication and perseverance and hopefully a bit of creativity definitely a good bit of fun along the way because it is blimmin important to have fun along the way because everything else is so serious yep. you know so if it all crashes and burns at least you've had that counterpoint of having had some great stories and great fun at the same time so yeah i'm an advocate of saying hey listen it's you know whoever you are it depends on what you want from life if if you're just happy to just let stuff drift by and just be in something where okay it pays the bills and that's fine then it's fine you're never going to know the disappointments and the the sadness but you're never going to go the never going to know the, the real uptimes yeah. of succeeding etc so it's a question of personality and it's a question about what you want from everything yeah. 
and I'm still out to have this big adventure, even at 58. Yeah. I really am. Well, a new one is about to start for you. So. It, it really is. So, yeah, it's about, you know, it's about work, getting on with it, but hopefully I'm a living good laugh along the way. Brilliant, brilliant. That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. much. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to episode three of the Motormouth podcast, and special thanks to Robin and the team at Right Formula for allowing us to record the podcast at their very fancy offices, uh, and to Perry for giving up his time. We'll be back with another episode soon, but in the meantime, if you missed our first two episodes with racing driver and Fernando Alonso protege, Callan O'Keefe, and Emmerdale actor, Kelvin Fletcher, you can listen back to those now. Like, subscribe, and review if you feel so inclined and we'll see you next time.